You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the show and thanks for finding us. This is Aaron Fishman. For this one, I had the privilege of interviewing TV writer David Cohan, who's best known for co-creating the pioneering hit comedy series Will and Grace with his writing partner Max Muchnick. As you may have heard, Will and Grace just returned to NBC this fall for its ninth season after an 11-year hiatus. In the second half of the conversation, we'll talk all about the show and what drives David to keep creating. But first, we discuss David's favorite NBA team, the Los Angeles Clippers, who, as David says in the forthcoming interview, have long played an integral role in his life. That gets into how this whole discussion came about. My dad, Joel Fishman, has been a Clippers season ticket holder since 1986, witnessing his fair share of hapless basketball, while also getting the chance to see some of the league's best teams and players beat up on the Clippers. Similarly, our guest shared season tickets at the LA Sports Arena in the late 80s. He's had his current seats since the Clippers made the move to Staples Center in 99. Interestingly enough, David's seats are located in the row in front of my dad's, so I've been able to talk with him a little bit over the years when I'm at games. As will soon become quite evident, David is a humongous fan. He's even been cursed out by and had his and his family members' lives threatened by Matt Barnes. Briefly, on another note, I'd like to implore you listeners and supporters to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love hearing from you, and the good deed may help new listeners find our show. But back to the intro... David also likes to humble brag about the Beverly Hills High School acting role he earned over a young Nicolas Cage, the part of Riff in West Side Story. David's last fun fact anecdote is so good, I'll let him tell it himself. One of my first jobs was the very first ESPY Awards, and I was the writer on. My, my, My writing partner, Max, and I, it was like our first, or it was one of our first jobs. It was maybe our second or third job. And uh, Max knows absolutely nothing about sports, you know, so he would not leave my side for one second. But here, here's what was particularly interesting about it. It was the, it was the award show that where Jim Valvano gave his famous, you know, never give up speech. And we had written a little, you know, maybe a couple of lines for him, which he absolutely ignored and went and did his, you know, just that magnificent uh, oration that he gave, but he didn't say written by Jim Falfano at the end. <laughs> we technically got credit for writing that speech, even though we had absolutely nothing to do with it. Special thanks to David for agreeing to come on. We hope you enjoy this fascinating discussion. Hey, David, I'm really glad to have you on. How's it going? It is going well. The complaints are ringing more hollow. I take that as a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I'm encouraged. So 
your Clippers obviously made wholesale changes this offseason to a Lob City core that you and I know had so much regular season success and its fair share of postseason letdowns. I think as humans, we inherently tend to fear change, but from my vantage point, there's so much to be excited about with this new unit. I know it's only two games in, and both teams that the Clippers beat are not very good. That's my disclaimer. But that aside, how are you feeling about this new-look team? So far, I really like it. There is a There was something about last season that felt joyless. In fact, I, that should have been what it said on the T-shirts, joyless. <laughs> um, this year... There, so far in, in the in the two game sample size, they seem looser and and freer. It seems more fun. You know, I remember the first ten games of last season. There was a real commitment to defense. That's why they started off so well, fourteen and one or something like that. It was amazing. It was an amazing start, and then that completely tailed off. You know, after those first ten games, it seemed like that. Right now, they seem as committed to defense and I'm, I'm attributing a lot of that to Patrick Beverly's presence. And I hope that, I hope they are able to maintain that. I I, I really do because I feel like if they can do that, they will be, I think they could get the fourth or fifth spot. Yeah. I don't think that's unrealistic to suggest. They obviously lost Chris Paul in the off season. He was traded to Houston and the front office recovered very quickly not only did they get something as opposed to just letting Chris Paul walk for nothing, they got some really exciting new pieces. You mentioned one of those in Patrick Beverly. I have a feeling he might be your answer for this one. But so far, who's been your favorite Clipper, newest addition? Patrick Beverly, it's the first time we've had an enforcer who's actually good. I mean, I I love his commitment. I love his intensity. You know, Matt Barnes was like an enforcer, but like I said, Patrick Beverly is actually good. And the uh, but Lou Williams to me is an improvement over an aging Jamal Crawford. I love Jamal Crawford, but Lou Williams I think represents Gallinari at the three is better than Luke Mbamute at the three. Um, I feel like Sam Decker has potential to be kind of like Gallinari, and I also feel like. Montrez Harrell, to me, was always a little bit underrated. He feels like a good addition. We'll see what happens with Bryce Johnson. But Teodosic, he's going to be good. I, I hope that injury isn't too serious. Do we know what it is? He injured his foot last night. Yeah, as of recording time, the x-rays have not been done or released to the public. Or Sorry, the MRI. It was negative with the x-rays um, after he left the game. But... Yeah, we're still waiting to hear about that. You went through a laundry list of all these new additions. Willie Reed, another one, backup center who had a great game. Really good against night. the he Suns. Was late, I mean, I mean, catching those lobs, uh, and they ran that play three or four times in a row, and that's either a testament to to how solid they are as a team or how bad Phoenix is defensively. Yeah, not to get too ahead of myself, but he kind of reminded me a little of DeAndre Jordan, how he was playing out there and working with the guards. So we talked about all these names. I see it kind of that question, who's your favorite new Clipper, is kind of a personality test. Patrick Beverly is if you like the more gritty, fundamental players. He's so good on defense, but he can also shoot. And he's just one of those guys you hate to have playing you, but you love to have on your team. 
Taya Dosich and Lou Williams are the flashier types. Lou Williams, volume score. Like you said, I think a younger version of Jamal Crawford, but fills a similar role, instant offense off the bench. Taya Dosich, amazing court vision. So he'll help um, fill in the void that was left by Chris Paul even though he's nowhere near the defender that Chris Paul was. And then Gallinari, I think, is the best small forward that they've had in some time. I kind of just went through a lot of them, but did you want to expand upon any of the players I mentioned just now? You know, to me, Patrick Beverly is he is that same kind of ornery, hard-nosed guy that Chris Paul was, but he doesn't, uh, obviously on the offensive end, he doesn't need the ball in his hand. It's not just dribble for 15 seconds, high screen roll, get the offense going, and 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 hopefully get a pass or two in. Um, I feel like that ball. Patrick Beverly is is so far my favorite new Clipper. Though I'm I really like all of the additions. When I first heard that Chris Paul was was being traded to Houston, first of all, it was it was an insane trade to me from Houston's perspective. And I, I, I couldn't believe that we actually let Chris Paul slip through our fingers. But now, just f- from the vantage point of you know a couple of games into the season, seeing what's happening to Chris Paul and seeing what this Clipper team is turning into, I'm actually happy about it. Yeah. And I know that Daryl Morey really wanted to get Chris Paul for years. You know, for 10 years, he's wanted that guy. And I kind of feel like, he finally had the opportunity to get him, and it's a few years too late. That's my take on on Chris Paul going to Houston. Chris Paul is obviously one of the league's best point guards, but he's had so many injury concerns over the years. And now, unfortunately for Paul in Houston, he's out two to four weeks with knee issues. And, and we'll monitor that. But when he's on the court, he's amazing. You hinted at one of the things it seems like you won't really miss the ball domination and and I think what it uh, w- will allow Blake Griffin to do more on ball and with facilitating so I just wanted to ask you what do you think is the mo- thing you most will miss about Chris Paul and then is there any silver lining I guess it might be what I just mentioned uh the thing that I will miss about Chris Paul is he was the guy that you know in any crunch time situation, he was the one you trusted the most. I trusted Chris Paul as a scorer, as a defender, as a team leader, as the guy who was going to make the right decision more than anybody else on the team by far. So it was scary initially when he was traded. In the downside of Chris Paul was you would see him constantly chirping at players. And you would see, I, I, think, I think Blake and DJ did a pretty good job for the most part masking their annoyance and their frustration. But I think Chris Paul had this attitude of like, you know, I ask guys to go bowling with me and they deal with it like it's a chore or something, you know, and as, as a team building kind of team unity sort of effort on Chris Paul's part. And I think that also speaks to the fact that people don't necessarily want to hang out with you, Chris, you're kind of annoying. You know, you're constantly (laughs) badgering players. You are, I mean, I think it comes from a, from his perfectionism, from a desire to be great, from a desire to be win, from a, a real knowledge of where it comes from. But I don't think he was a great personality manager, which is a really important part of being a leader. Know who your teammates are, know who the people are around you, and make adjustments. Don't expect people to adjust to your personality. You know, 
And I think Chris Paul was actually kind of bad at that. His attitude was there's a right way and a wrong way, and my way is the right way. And if you're not going to get on board, you're going to hear it from me until you do. And I think that's problematic, especially with free spirits like DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin. These are They seem younger. They seem a decade younger than Chris Paul, even if they're not. They're just kind of cooler mm-hmm. and more free-spirited, and they're funnier. They're smart guys, you know. They don't need to be lectured at by Chris Paul, and I think that will benefit them. You can kind of see it. Their spirits seem to have risen since Chris Paul left. Yeah, they seem to be playing way more carefree, and that phenomenon that you're alluding to, I think, is kind of like a mini Kobe Bryant type thing what was always the common criticism of of Kobe Bryant, how he conducted himself with teammates. And so I can definitely see how that would be a problem. I also, I completely agree with you just about all the trust I had in Chris Paul at the ends of games on both ends of the court. And that brings me to my next question about Blake Griffin and his burgeoning leadership or so the Clippers hope. So he signed that five-year, $173 million deal in the offseason. So just generally, what do you expect from him this season? And what do you have to see from him both on and off the court from a leadership standpoint? Well, on the court, it's this. You know, Blake, I feel like he's, he's obviously worked on his game. He's hugely talented. I think he's an intelligent guy. I think he's a, I think he's a good guy. And... Um, he, he's not a vocal leader. He's not one of these guys who's necessarily going to be the inspirational leader of a, of a team, but he is the best player and he, and he is a smart basketball player. So I like all that. I like the, the example that he sets by imp- really, really markedly improving aspects of his game every year. The, my biggest concern about Blake, as I think most Clipper fans have is, you know, in in crunch time you know in the last two minutes of a game is he the guy you want to go to and so far i kind of think the answer is no up to this point in his career but this year is telltale you know this year will determine whether he's that guy or not i think you know in the last two minutes of a close game with a lot on the line who is the clipper that i would most want to see take that shot is it blake right now it might be lou williams you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's an open question. Definitely. But I think that's going to be the big determining factor. I mean, it's like, can on the court, can Blake do that so far? And I, I, I love his game, but if he gets the ball on the low block, having to score, I see guys collapsing on him and I see him either passing out of the double team a little bit too late or trying to force the ball to the basket and putting up a bad shot. There are definitely times where he just ends up dribbling too too often. And as you said, the double team arrives and he can't get it out of there quick enough. If he's able to get a better sense of the timing, that can create open shots for all these shooters around him. They just have such a deep team. But he never really had the opportunity, I think, to close games with Chris Paul there. And as we said, we trusted him so much in those situations. So I think this will be kind of a good case study of how clutch he can be the other thing I wanted to ask you about him I'm so excited about the three-point shooting aspect of his game last season he attempted a career high 113 three-pointers and he didn't even really start attempting that many until the all-star break or so so 
if he stays healthy, he's certain to set a new career record. In the offseason and preseason, he gained even more confidence with that shot. It seems like it's been a focus and a priority in evolving his game over the years. How important do you think that aspect is to his evolution as a player? Really important, especially with this team. I mean, the question is, when if you have DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin on the floor at the same time, late in the fourth quarter of a tight game, what's the deal with the spacing? You know, how is that going to work out? And now that Blake has made it so that you have to respect his three-point shooting, it completely opens the game up. I mean, you can actually have DJ in there as a defensive stopper late in games. I think that is a really, really great, that's a big advantage compared to past years. And and props to Blake for, for incorporating that and working on it and making, can you remember what kind of a free throw shooter he was? Just yeah. what a sh- kind of a shooter he was in general when he first came into the league. He barely shot over 50% from the line. And now he's always in the mid-70s. His jump shot has improved every year, and it opens up his game. I'm very proud of him. <laughs> it hasn't been true for some time now, but there used to always be this stigma. People would say, all he does is dunk, or things like that. Broadcasters would say, just stay close to the basket where you can dunk and overpower people. And he didn't listen to them. He developed his game over time. There were some some ups and downs, but... He's a shooter now and a really well-rounded offensive player. Just the last thing before we transition to a totally different topic, Danilo Gallinari and Blake Griffin, to be completely honest about this, are two particular players with checkered injury histories, including knee injuries. How much concern do you have about their potential for injuries derailing the Clippers season? And also, if you can give me just a best and worst case scenario for what you expect from the team this season, it could be wins, losses, or postseason finish, whatever you feel comfortable predicting. Well, I am concerned about the injuries, of course, but like anything else, there's no, I mean, what's the point of worrying about that? You could, you know, people worried about, Gordon Hayward being injured? Were people worried about Jeremy Lin being injured going into the year? It's just sort of like injuries happen. And just because you're prone to it, it's not like a, it's not like a chronic foot problem like Bill Walton had, or it's not like Greg Oden's injury. You know what I mean? These are things, right. you know, that what Blake had were kind of... A lot of them were fluky. I, I mean, the punching uh, assistant manager is a little concerning for other reasons, but... That's that's not like a chronic like, hand injury. Did Gallinari have that also? Like, is that contagious? Is that is <laughs> right when it was right after they acquired him? Too. I guess what it's that's. I mean, he, I guess he was showing what a true Clipper he was by punching someone in the face and injuring his hand. He fits right in right now with that. So the answer is no. I'm going to choose not to be concerned about their uh, injury history as something that um, portends something bad for the Clippers this year. I don't. I'm not. I'm going to assume that everybody's going to be healthy all year long until proven otherwise. And as far as best and worst case scenario, um, I think assuming, you know, relatively good health, I think the worst case scenario is they're the, they're the eighth seed. You know, that is if, if they have, you know, an injury here and there or lapses or, you know, there are elements to the offense that or chemistry that need to be worked out and the best case scenario who knows watching 
Oklahoma City get shellacked by Utah last night was really fun to watch. You know, it was re- it's going to be really good to try to watch those three guys trying to find a balance. I'm sure they will eventually, but it's they're not the Golden State Warriors. They're not these share, be open-hearted basketball players first. You know, these are three guys with monster egos who think they're the best. Maybe not so much Paul George, but I can't quite imagine. So it, Oklahoma City could be worse than we thought. Houston, they're just really, really deep. They're so deep. I can't see them falling off. And I can't see, I can't see San Antonio ever being bad as long as they have that system and Popovich is there and Kawhi Leonard till. But fourth, it's conceivable. I would say fourth is the best case scenario. Eighth is the worst. That seems reasonable. I have them around finishing in the fifth seed or so. I'm with you about the Carmelo Anthony Russell Westbrook fit, especially given those how those guys like to play. And we have, I think it's in about three weeks, a Thunder episode where we're, we'll be talking with um, an Oklahoma City beat reporter. So that'll be really interesting to learn more behind the scenes about that team and what we can expect going forward. I want to transition to something completely unrelated. I'm was thinking of how I can relate the two. Maybe it's love. You you love the Clippers so much. It's it's a life passion for you supporting the Clippers and you created a show, some little show called Will and Grace that some listeners may have heard of. Congratulations on all your phenomenal success with that. After 11 years off, Will and Grace is back for season 9, was also just picked up for season 10. I guess the first question is just how did that process of of bringing the show back unfold? Organically is the answer. I mean, we had no intention of doing it. Max, my, my writing partner came to me and said, you know, we should, we should do something for the election. Just get out the vote or, you know, try to make sure, you know, that monster doesn't get into office. Um, Shows you how much clout we have. And so we made this little video. We we, we just got everybody back together to make this video, uh, just kind of a get Uh out the vote video. And, um, and that, you know, the response to that was, was really positive so much so that the head of NBC uh, came to us and said, well, why don't we do this again? And, and I was reluctant at first. I thought, well, it's sort of run its course, but I think there was a sense that, you know, that there was a need for something comforting and familiar to be out there on in public, in the public broadcasting sphere that, um, that in time, in really, really bad troubled times like these would serve a function would serve, you know, would serve to be a comfort to people if only for half an hour on Thursday nights, you know? Yeah. To that end, I thought, okay, well, this is now a worthwhile endeavor. And I think I can make it so that we can get all the work done before tip-off on home games. And that is my goal. That actually is my goal for the year, to get, <laughs> to get everything written and, uh, and all the rewrites done before every single... I, I, so far, I, there's only one game I'm going to miss because of the shooting schedule. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, but in terms of a corollary between the two... Um, you know, I actually think, uh, the pressures of the job are relieved by 
going to basketball games and following the NBA and following the Clippers so closely. You know, I think, I think it's not that, I think one is the antidote to the other, to the anxieties of the other, you know. Is it that it's out of your control as someone who, who controls a lot within your job um, that you just kind of let go and the Clippers take you wherever they take you? I, yes. And I also think that, you know, the, if I didn't, if I didn't have, it's easy to obsess, to obsess about the work and obsess about the things you should have done and obsess about the, the problems that could arise. And that can be never ending. If you don't find something to throw yourself into, to, you know, to, to really, really get into, you know, I, I'm lucky that way. I have, I have my, I have my family, I have things I love to do. And I have basketball, like I have the Clippers, and it completely transports me from uh, <laughs> from what I'm doing on the job. And um, I mean, I'm I'm grateful. I love, you know, it's interesting because every people always say you you seem to love this so much. Why is why is this isn't this something you would want to do? Why wouldn't you want to do something with basketball? And I think it would defeat that purpose, you know, that it serves right now. Right now, it's it's only something that I love. It's only joy. I, I, I wouldn't want it to be the source of, you know, anxiety or consternation or, or, or work. Related to what you just said, I know some basketball journalists that wouldn't even consider themselves fans anymore because it's become just a job where maybe they're a little bit jaded. So it's, it's kind of zapped the fan out of them. But... I'm definitely following and I know what you're talking about. You hinted at the answer to this just now. It's kind of a big question, but I'd love to know just what's your view about the role comedy programs can or should play in our social and political conversation as a society? The the first episode had a number of jokes about this incompetent Trump administration, and um, you've never really shied away from controversial topics from the beginning of the show. Right. Or so-called controversial topics. I, I mean, it's hard, it's, it's hard for a show, it's hard for this show to be topical um, only because, you know, the things that are topical in this administration, the turnover is so fast. The idiot... It's changing like the Scaramucci thing. That was less than a week or whatever. You can't make a Scaramucci joke because it's, they're gone. And I mean, there are so many monumentally horrible and stupid things that are coming at you constantly that seem ripe for parody or satirization but you can't once you do it and if it's aired four weeks later we're like oh my god yeah when did that happen years ago right it it, it there's a time warp happening because mm-hmm. all of the crazy stuff that's happening with this with this incompetent administration it's old news because it keeps happening over and over again it's such a rapid clip that it's hard to and and the nightly shows, you know, uh, or even the weekly shows like John Oliver and Bill Maher, they do a really good job of making fun of the the raging incompetence and the insanity of this administration. That's not what our job. I don't see that as the job of our comedy show. I see the job of our comedy show is to, is to just, you know, be true to who these characters are. And make sure that the people who are fans of the show are entertained by these four characters. They live in the world. They comment on the reality of, you know, late 2017. Um, But there it's 
it's not it's not our job to tell you exactly why and what is funny about the the derangement of this administration on a daily basis and even though you don't see that as your job to do that i think that it it at least allows people to cope a little bit with the absurdity as you you reference some of that stuff throughout and it's like i would think as a comedian or a comedic actor it's pretty easy with this administration (laughs) like what i've seen stephen colbert do a lot of times he just says what happens and it's hilarious it's it's not even like you have to sit down and think really hard to develop a joke it's it's almost like it writes itself it seems like it's an embarrassment of riches I mean, it really is on a daily basis, you know, it's, and, and, yeah. but, you know, we shoot a show in the episode on the f- quickest turnarounds come out a couple of weeks later. So, so it's hard to be topical and it, it's hard to say, can you believe this idiot did this today? And because if you, once you say that it happened a month ago, once it airs. Yeah. This next question kind of relates to that. So much has changed since the spring of 2006 when the initial run ended. Social media, especially Facebook, was just becoming available to the general public that year. Twitter also launched in 2006. And just generally how people consume media these days with the advent of streaming services. Does that affect in any way how your creative process, how you create content? Not for this show. Not for this show, because I think one of the, it does, it does only in as much as we as writers have, have absorbed the last 10 years of popular culture and technological innovation, just like everybody else has. And to the extent that is filtered into our sensibilities, and that is then projected into the work, right? There was a grinder reference in the, I think it was the first or second episode. I think that's one good example. Completely. But also there's a, there's a different approach to to content in general like yeah. there's the show that we make every week and then there's all this ancillary stuff that goes into different platforms different social media platforms that are all new when i last did this show that was just starting there were you know people were talking about hey maybe there could be an alternate website you know or maybe jack would have his own uh online presence on a show or something like that it was very you know sort of broad kind of ideas about how to use social media now in terms of the marketing of the show and in terms of content that they need just to feed the beast it's there's so much more it's so much more yeah crazy how much has changed in such little time was there any consideration given to modernizing the format i'm talking about things like altering the multi-camera setup or or maybe the presence of studio audience laughter for instance um no no there wasn't actually you know and and he and and here's why our thinking you know one of the things that we kept saying is if the appeal of this show initially was the novelty of you know two gay leads the appeal of the return, the reboot of it is the familiarity of it. It's the comfort of it. And so our goal wasn't to, um, to reinvent this thing. Our goal was to do what it was, but to just give it a little facelift. Every, except for the act. Honestly, everything about the show has had a facelift except the actors. Amazingly, they're, 
They're incredibly well-preserved. I'm grateful to their parents for the genes that they provided them because they haven't changed at all, but everything else has just changed a little bit, but not so much that it's still, it still needs to be what it was. It, what, our goal was not to do anything radical or to reinvent it at all. It's the same characters, the same circumstances, you know, visually and acoustically the same show. It's just 2017 now. Did part of that, do you think, also come from the fact that you have so many longtime loyal viewers that you didn't want it to be jarring to them? It's just what they know and love. So why tweak it? If it's not broke, don't fix it, basically. Yes, that's right. I mean, we sensed that the the appeal of this show wasn't going to be, here's a brand new, wildly different interpretation of this show that people like. That's not the sense that we got at all. We got the sense that, please come back. We, 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 we are rudderless, and there's nothing funny or amusing to us anymore because we live in such dark times. Just... I, I longed for the way it was. That was the appeal of it. That was the, re- to me, was the reason to do it again. So radically changing it would, would kind of defeat the whole purpose. Just an easy one for you. What was it like to reunite and just start working again with so much of the old cast and crew? It, it, was, an, it was a wild thing because you think, okay, well, it's been 11 years a lot. There's going to be a lot. It's going to feel different. There's going to be a lot of changes, a lot of water under the bridge, you know, so much. Not true at all. It felt like no time had passed. It felt like we had gone on a slightly longer hiatus than we had in the past. And we were just getting together to do the show again. It was a real, it felt like time had collapsed more than anything else. Like suddenly 11 years when, when, when I thought about the show, it seemed, yeah, that seems about like 10 years ago. But when I was actually, when we actually started production, it really seemed like maybe a year had passed. It really didn't seem that long. And I think so much of that is that it's the same trappings and the same people, you know, and, and uh, that was comforting. So you've been fortunate enough to keep almost everyone intact, as much as possible of the crew together? The crew, I mean, you know, same, the same director, the same camera crew. You know, the costumer, hair and makeup, and the production design team, and half the writing staff. I mean, it really is. It, it's, it's, we, we got the band back together. Just as we wind down, the last thing that I'd love to learn more about you come from a family of writers. Your father had so much success in the TV writing industry. And your mom's a novelist, written a screenplay. Your sister, Genji creator of Orange is the New Black and Weeds. I know um, you're a fraternal twin, I believe. I'm an identical twin, so I always hear about the nature versus nurture debate. I'm wondering for you, is the writing gene, bug, skill, whatever you want to call it, is that more, do you think, nature or nurture? I don't know. It's a good question. Like, I wonder, I'm just glad, supposing I had been born to plumbers, you know, (laughs) I guess presumably I'd be doing that. That'd be that. a good test, there, unless you just had the gene, the writing gene. Maybe, but there's also something, I mean, it all sort of, generally I come down on the side of nature in a lot of things, especially as a parent. There are certain things where you're like, oh, well, that kid was who that kid was. I had some mild guidance, but for the most part, you know, I, I you can't, you know, you can't turn somebody 
who's not a writer into a writer just because you will it or try to teach it. You know, I, I, I think they either have a proclivity for it or they don't. And in this particular case, yeah, maybe. But I also think it was, you know, the nature of the dinner table at our house. You know, it, 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 it was, it seemed like you had to be, you had to be fast or you had to be, and it wasn't, it really wasn't because of any set of expectations that my parents had. It's just, that's the way it fell out. That was everybody's personality. You know, we thought in sort of like writerly terms, or we thought in terms of jokes, or we thought in terms of that. And that's the way we expressed ourselves. Uh, and, you know, but the other thing is, like any other line of work, if you see your parents do it, you don't think to yourself, okay, this is an impossible pipe dream. Right. You think, oh, okay, well, if worse comes to worse, I could always do that because I know how, I know that it can be done. I've seen somebody do it for a living my whole life. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not scary and it's not intimidating. It's what one does for a living. So it didn't seem like I was taking a giant risk by choosing this as a profession. Whereas if I had done something that was really foreign to me, it might have. I think it's impossible to separate the nurture and nature elements, but I'm a firm believer in you're a product of your environment. That just shapes you in so many ways. The last, now this really is the last question because <laughs> it's related. I'm just curious, and I really do appreciate your time and insight. It's always great talking with you. Have you ever collaborated with your sister on something professionally? Or would you consider doing that if you haven't? I, I did collaborate with something with my sister. And it was, it was a really bad experience. <laughs> Not because, only because I did it in the interest. This is when she was um, starting out as a creator. Like she, it was hard for her to get traction, even though she was always great and had great ideas. But Genji's an iconoclast and she is, um, she's just, she's not the kind of person who can be in that second or third position. It has to be her vision. And in this case, she was doing a half hour multicam, which is not really her sensibility. And we were suddenly responsible for making Warner Brothers happy in this case, we meaning Max and I. And it created a lot of friction. I would love to work with Genji, just the two of us, on something uh, in the in the future. But only because my, my, my sister and I have always been really close. And this was a painful little episode in our lives, you know, that, that professional experience. That said, I think we would... I think we'd be really good together. I think we'd actually be a really good team, especially now that we've come more fully into who we are as people. It would be it would be a lot easier. That'd be great to see. Again, I really appreciate your time. Thanks again for joining me. Aaron, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. Enjoy the Clippers season. I know I will. <laughs>